0: We construct a relationship to our experience. We're for it, we're against it. We want it, we don't want it. We hate it, we love it. And it's really interesting to start noticing how the relationship to what's happening is also part of what's happening in the present moment. Welcome to the Be Here Now Guest Podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. Until recently, a recent maybe century or so or two, (laughs) Buddhism uh, was not called a religion. In fact, it was not even called Buddhism. Rather, it was called a magga or a marga, which means a path. It's a path to walk on. And this evening, I'd like to give um, a talk a little bit about some sense of a path or lead you on a little bit of a journey. And um, it's a journey that goes in, inward. And if you take this path inward, in far enough, it gets pretty far out. And I would like to do it a little bit by Explaining a little bit about a um, chant. <clears throat> it's a very short four-line chant. And in our tradition, um, this chant is probably in there in the top five. You know, So, top ten or top five <coughs> all-time favorite chants. And the chant goes <clears throat> in Pali. Something like <clears throat> Anichawata Sankara Upadua Yodamino Upakitua Neruchanti Sang Vupasamo suko All constructed things are impermanent. They have the nature of arising and passing away. Having arisen, they will pass away. Bringing these constructions to peace is happiness. So the idea of constructions, impermanence, the rising and passing of things, the idea of um, Taking these constructions, these constructive activities, and settling them, stilling them, and how that brings um, the Mahasukha, the great happiness. So, in our tradition, the path begins uh, with mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness. And it's a practice of showing up to what's here. The word mindfulness is pretty popular these days mindfulness-based, this and that, and um, because it's such a popular term now, sometimes it's almost been lost or it's been mystified or it's been, you know, it's, you know, people have kind of strange ideas of what it's supposed to be. And so I like to sometimes translate the word sati into English as the word noticing. Because noticing is not very sexy in the way that mindfulness nowadays, I don't know if it's sexy, but, you know, it's kind of like in. But noticing, you know, your neighbor comes to you and says, what great religious practice are you doing? (laughs) Oh, I notice things. (laughs) You know, so, okay, I guess. (laughs) I hope that's nice for you. (laughs) <laughs> and um, but to notice but we notice with care and we notice um, with um, real stability of presence we really notice carefully what is here and it doesn't take a lot of noticing well first noticing is meant to be very simple very ordinary mindfulness now has all these strange associations but noticing just you know oh i noticed that The lights are kind of dim in here. I notice that I'm sitting here on the platform. I notice that I'm talking. Very simple, ordinary things. Just noticing, and um, it doesn't imply deep, intimate investigation into the essence of things. You know, just just you know, it's like casual. I noticed. That's what I noticed. I didn't. I didn't notice it. Did you see the subtle impermanence of that breath? No, I didn't notice that. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. It's just kind of very simple. That spirit of simplicity, just here, present. But it doesn't take a lot of noticing to notice that the mind doesn't notice very much. (laughs) Especially when you're trying to notice. (laughs) They say that uh, mindfulness is easy. What's difficult is remembering to do it. The noticing is easy. And the mind has a very strong tendency to wander off into the past and the future. And so, what we're trying to do here is to train ourselves to be here. So the noticing can be some higher quality of noticing. So you can really be here to notice, in some continuous way, what is here. But it doesn't have to be some grand thing. It doesn't have to be the Big Bang Theory of Enlightenment. Two monks, or two young men, came to the monastery around the same time. They had an entrance interview with the abbot. Why are you here? And the first one said, I'm here. Oh, this first one was a brilliant, successful aristocrat in these kinds of stories. He has to be that. And uh, why are you here? And the aristocrat said, oh, I'm here to experience the full power and luminosity of the Dharma. And the abbot said, hmm, be careful what you ask for, but you're welcome to come be a monk here. So he came into the monastery and he Settled in, and as soon as he could, he rushed off to the meditation hall. After all, he'd been eager to be there. He was quite capable, smart, strong concentration. He was confident in his ability to meditate. He was going to go for it. Got to the hall, sat down. Relatively quickly, within a few minutes, he could start feeling the samadhi building up. Start feeling warm, feeling light. Luminosity started to happen. Wow. I'm sure, you know, I didn't know it was going to be this fast, but i um, you know, I just kind of bore in here and I'm sure the full power and luminosity of the Dharma will appear soon. Stronger, more luminous, and then suddenly, poof, he burst into flames. <laughs> and soon all that was left on his Afu was some ashes. The second monk, the second man, came to the monastery to be a monk. And of course, he was a son of poor farmers. (laughs) And um, the abbot asked him, And why are you here at the monastery? Why do you want to be a monk? And the young man said, Oh, I'm here to see the Dharma in the ordinary activities of my life. In the food that I eat, in the faces of my companions in the monastery, in the raking of the monastery ground. And the abbot said, welcome. The monk went, came into the monastery, settled in, and later in the day, the bell rang for meditation. together with the other monks, he started walking to meditation hall. And outside the hall, he took off his shoes, his sandals, and he placed them on the shoe rack. But then he noticed that his shoes were kind of askew, kind of not really lined up very well in the shoe rack. And he noticed that he hadn't been paying so much attention. He was a little bit excited about being in the monastery the first day. So he leaned over to kind of straighten out his his sandals. And he noticed, as he looked at them, that these sandals of his were already starting to get worn out and old. He'd had them for a few years. And he remembered that just so recently they were so new, and now they're old. And here he was, a new monk, first day in the monastery. And he thought, pretty soon, I'll be an old monk here in the monastery. That'll happen quickly to me. And he bent down to straighten out his shoes. And he saw that, actually, the way he positioned them on the shelf, if he moved them over to the left a little bit, there would be a little bit more space and easier for the next monk to put his shoes up there. So he moved his shoes over, and he straightened up, and he walked into the meditation hall. And that monk lived happily for many years. And gradually, gradually grew into a full awakening. But it was so slow for him, he hardly noticed that it was happening. So which monk do you want to be? (laughs) Did you come here for the, you know, this is the retreat where I'm gonna bore down and (laughs) use my abilities, and I'm really gonna get somewhere in this retreat. I'm gonna work through those issues. I'm going to you know, finally taste the truth of Buddhism, I'm just, I'm going to just sit strong enough, late enough, long enough. Or are you more the person who just wants to notice and find the Dharma in the ordinary activities of a breath, breathing in, breathing out, putting on your shoes as you leave, opening the door, walking down the hill, cleaning the toilets, standing in line for your food. To take those as places to notice, to be present, as if they're important, as if that is where the Dharma could be found, as opposed to standing in line, waiting to do your dishes at the dish, the kind of window there. Impatient because you have important things to do in the meditation hall. You don't, you, person, they don't seem to realize that you ha, you're going to up there to meditate and really taste the truth of what Buddhism has to teach. And what's ke- getting in the way is that line of long people. And that's not, you know, that just, that line is in the way. It's not in the way. That's where the Dharma is found. Wherever you are, whatever simple activity, whatever's going on, that's the place where we notice we're present. And to notice what's happening here and now, in the simplicity, in the complexity, in the situation as it is, is a big part of the training. How to be simple with things as they are now, to notice. And a retreat like this is designed to highlight the possibility Of simple presence. There's relatively little you need to do to accomplish, to get to, and so here you have a chance to explore and discover yourself in relationship to this moment, this activity, whatever it might be. And as we do this, we encounter a full range, over time, a full range of our life. Sometimes we encounter the bite of food that we eat. And sometimes we encounter much more earth-shaking events that can change us forever. This uh, story is titled The Pilgrimage. At the beginning of every year, the abbot would meet the new monks who had joined the monastery over the preceding year. At the meeting, he would instruct them to pack their bags. He was going to take them on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. Knowing of pilgrimages that Buddhists will take to places in India where the Buddha was born, enlightened, first taught and died, the new monks couldn't believe their good fortune. And after the first months in the monastery, some of the new monks were bored. Some were unsure why they were there, and others were restless. One day, on the day, of the, on the day of departure, all the older monks in the monastery stood by the gate to send off the abbot and the new monks. Leading the group, the abbot first took them to a hospital. There the monks spent many hours visiting the sick. Then the abbot took the group to an old age home. The new monks, many who were quite young, were amazed at the ravages of old age of some of the residents of the home. The abbot then took the monks to see a hospice. In the hours there, the monks spent time with people in all stages of dying, including a long silent vigil with someone recently dead. The abbot then led the group back to the monastery. There they they first visited a monk sick in the monastery infirmary. The new monks were struck by the sparkle of joy which radiated through the tired eyes of the patient. Then they went on to visit the oldest resident of the monastery, a 96-year-old monk. The new monks were amazed to see love and acceptance in the toothless, frail, and stooped monk. Next, the abbot took them to the hospice wing of the monastery. Here they were introduced to a monk who, only days away from his death, radiated a palpable peace that lingered within them for hours after. Finally, the abbot took the monks to the meditation hall. When they were all seated, he said, you have seen the holy sights. These are the sights that motivated the Buddha to awaken. Once you are awakened, sickness, old age, and death will not trouble you anymore. So it's a simple act of noticing. And as we go through our life and we notice <clears throat> and allow what's there to really be registered, take it in, these events of our life will also hopefully motivate us to not only to notice, but to look more deeply. What is this life of ours? What is going on here? So I'd like to offer you this idea <clears throat> that in any given moment, Of experience. There are three things that are going on. The first is what is happening, whatever that might be. It could be your knee that aches. It could be the deer that are walking down the hill. It could be the sound of an airplane. Could be someone flushing the toilet in the residence hall. Someone clomping up the steps late in the night, waking you up. It could come into the dining room a little bit late, and no more dessert. It could be anything. So, there's some, what's happening, and a big part of mindfulness is just showing up to notice what's happening. When we sit to meditate, do mindfulness practice, we're trying to just notice, be open to notice, the full spectrum of what our human experience is. Not all at once, not in a busy way, but we say we would notice what is predominant. What is the most compelling or predominant experience of the moment that needs or wants our attention? And then we, matter-of-factly, bring our attention to that. We begin, in our tradition here, with the breath because it's stabilizing, the good default, good place to train. But then if some strong sensation in your body arises, that's what's happening. So we bring our attention there. If strong emotions arise then we let go of the breath, and we just bring mindfulness to emotions. If strong bouts of thinking going on, that's what's predominant, we can let go of the breath and we pay attention to the thinking. If sounds occur, we pay attention to that. So it's a training here to learn to pay attention to what is happening with some care. And we're learning how to move the attention around calmly, and deliberately, the sense of calm deliberateness. Oh, there's a loud sound. Sound. Let me take that in. Let me notice that. But let me, as I as I bring myself to really notice it, let that noticing be calm and deliberate. Oh, there's a. You know, there's. I'm gonna now. I'm gonna be with my in breath. Calm, deliberate attention there. So part of what we're doing here is training ourselves to be present. A certain way of being present to notice. As we do this, we begin, at some point we start noticing the second thing, there's what's happening was the first thing, and the second thing is our relationship to what's happening. And our relationship is a big part of how we experience something, though often enough we don't see that. Sometimes we see, it's like the, they say the fish doesn't see the water it swims in. Sometimes we don't see the relationship that we're engaged in with what's happening. So um, something as simple as being with your breathing. But it could be anything, as an example. There might be... Um, the relationship with that is... My, my breathing, I've heard in Buddhism, breath meditation is really important. This is going to save me. And so there's kind of great expectation and hope on that breath and being able to stay with it. And so it's not just noticing, it's like leaning into it, hoping. All hope is attached to that breath, which is so fleeting. So it's a relationship. Or it could be that um, I can't believe they're telling me to watch my breathing. I mean, talk about something boring. I mean, I can entertain myself with a lot of wonderful things, just, if, I, if, they just allow me, if they just allowed me to think. And so there's like this almost aversion. Like I don't want to pay attention to that. Something's so boring. So there's an inversion to it. Or there could be that the relationship is one of distance. We hold ourselves back from our experience. I don't think I want to get too close. I want to kind of keep it at arm's distance. There's maybe some. Fear or, or a sense of caution about everything. And so, eyes are open, kind of keeping things distance, checking things out. So, with the breath, too, it's kind of like, I'm not going to get too close. I'll stay up here in the control tower and watch it. Keep it at a distance. Just watch. They talk about watching. Great. I'm a great watcher. <laughs> then I, I don't have to get committed. And I don't, you know, I'm just committed to the breath thing. And other people, some people are, might be, you know, glorious sensualists. You know, the more sensual, the better. And that breath, wow, I, can, I get to go into that feeling and that smooth feeling of exhaling and the warmth and expansion and, and the, the kind of that wonderful alternation that goes on with expanding and contracting. and whew, and, and I'm just going to go really be in it So, what I'm trying to give you is a few of the infinite options of how someone might be relating to something as simple as the breathing. To make it two simple category options, there might be some ways in which people keep themselves removed from experience, and some ways that people get involved and get into experience, sink into it or something. And within those two categories, there's a lot of subways of being. Uh, sometimes it's quite problematic. People who just become up in their head watching, separate from experience, sometimes live removed from others, from themselves, from their emotions. And it kind of, can be kind of almost an alienating exist- existence. Some people get into their experience so much that sometimes it's too much. They get into their emotion. They live in their emotions, so much that they're drowning in the drama, drowning in the strength of it. It's like they just—it's like they just feel stuck. It's like they're stuck in this maze or stuck in this, you know, sticky stuff of life, and they're they're stuck in their thinking mind. How many of you felt stuck in that thinking mind today? Get me out! <laughs> and I was like in it. And um, <clears throat> so so there are two, there are two different ways. Some people are more the in-it kind of people. Some are maybe the more away people. These are some, you know, it's it's a way of being in relationship. Those relationships, that kind of relationship is called constructed constructions. Remember that, that chant? We construct a relationship to our experience. We're for it, we're against it. We want it, we don't want it. We hate it. We love it. And it's really interesting to start noticing how the relationship to what's happening is also part of what's happening in the present moment. And sometimes when meditation instruction is given, the language in which it's given is sometimes offered as an antidote to some of the more unhealthy ways that we might be relating. So for someone who keeps themselves removed from experience, the instructions might be rest in the experience, enter into the experience, feel it, sense it, be aware of the breath within the breath. For someone who gets lost in their experience, feels like they're drowning in their emotions or whatever, the instructions might be um, step back and be a watcher. Just watch. Watch your thoughts go by, as opposed to live in your thinking. As antidotes, that kind of instructions can be very useful for particular situations. So we have a way which we construct a relationship. and It's very important when you start getting into this mindfulness practice to becoming sensitive that how you experience life is not a given. It's not just the way that nature wants it to be, but that we're partly constructing a relationship all the time. And so we want to start becoming aware of that constructed relationship. So, um, Howie had this great story of the 84th problem. That 84th problem was the, is the construction. So you're sitting here meditating, and maybe, who knows why, but maybe your breathing is tight and shallow. So the approach of mindfulness would be, just notice that. I get to notice a tight and shallow breath. Wow. I guess I'll become the world expert on what a tight and shallow breath feels like. Or you might get into it saying, Oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm in California. And you're supposed to have this you know, long, deep, spiritual breath. And this breath is the wrong breath to have. And then you've started to construct a relationship, an idea about that breathing. As opposed to just letting it be what it is and just be present. So, at some point, as we start being present, we become aware of this added dimension of the present moment, is how we're relating to it. How we talked about the attitude we have is part of it. And it's very interesting to study our attitudes. Some people have really core, basic operating attitudes they carry with them all the time. Uh, and, and retreat is sometimes a great place to discover that, to where that's revealed. Sometimes people on retreat will come and say, I had no idea how pervasive fear is in my life. It's there all the time. Or I had no idea how pervasive aversion is. Or judgments. Turns out I'm always judging. I didn't realize it because I was too distracted to notice how much I'm doing. But I'm always judging, judging, judging. Or I'm always wanting wanting, wanting, wanting. I'm always wanting something. Or I'm always expecting that somewhere in the future, the solution to my life is to be found. And I'm always ahead of myself, wishing, hoping, expecting. Or I'm always feeling that that life is too much. I feel feel like just everything's happening is just too much, too, too oppressive, too challenging, too confusing. And there's an underlying attitude that's always there. In Buddhism, all these underlying attitudes are called constructions. They're part of this constructed activity of the mind. And these constructed activities of the mind are, by nature, impermanent. They have the nature of arising and passing. Some of them don't pass fast enough. But that's partly because we've locked onto them. But in and of themselves, their nature is to arise and to pass. They're constructed activities. They're not something that's fixed. We're not, you know, it's not like hardware. It's the software. And so, important part of the practice is starting to notice how do we relate to what's happening, and it's one of the great keys to this practice because it's in the attitude and the relationship that freedom is found. It's not found so much in changing your experience as it is learning a new way of relating to your experience. And this is a very radical statement to make. Because many people are oriented towards their life, oriented towards life, about trying to find the right experience, the right relationship, the right job, the right security, the right something that's going to make their life work. It's certainly an important part of life is to try to make things work well. But there's another opportunity, another possibility, which is to begin changing how we relate. And I've been really amazed at how situations that have been very challenging for me have stopped being challenging when my relationship changed, when my attitude towards them changed. It's not an easy thing to do because of the ways they're kind of locked in. So starting to look at our relationship. Now in this regard, I want to talk about one way of holding ourselves at a distance from our experience. And that is to think about it. And I love this expression, thinking about. Because thinking about, living in the world of aboutness, is not real experience. So I've had the experience of eating food And as I'm eating it, begin analyzing and thinking about the recipe and how I'm going to cook the same thing later. And in doing that, stop tasting the food. So I've entered into the world of aboutness. I'm thinking about, and I've lost the direct connection. Most thinking is about something. If you live in your thinking, then you live in the world of about. If you think you are your thinking, which some people do, then you're living in a, then you're an about. (laughs) There's nothing inherently wrong with thinking. It's a very helpful, useful, beautiful tool. But it's possible to get lost in this world, the maze of thinking. And the degree degree to which we're living in a world of aboutness, we're removed and separate from our experience. So, I've been on retreat, sitting quietly, minding my own business, meditating, get inspired, and then I start thinking about my next retreat <laughs> and how great my next retreat is going to be. So that's obvious that thinking about the next retreat is not this retreat, it's not this experience. But I've also sat here retreat, thinking about this retreat. And that's not so clear how thinking about this retreat is different from experiencing this retreat. But it also keeps us kind of removed. There can be all kinds of judgments, interpretations, stories we tell ourselves <clears throat> about this retreat, or about anything. And all the story-making interpretations, maybe there's have some truth to them, maybe they have no, no truth to them, but even if they have tr- they're true in some way, there's still this distance This remove. So, one of the things we're trying to do here in this practice is to notice how all this works. Wow. Notice that. I just spent the last five minutes abouting. Mm -hmm. Now you have a new label about thing, abouting. Just living in the world of abouting, about things. Notice how that works. It's great. You, you don't have to, if you say, say to yourself, well, I'm really a bad meditator spending all this time abouting, then you've entered a relationship, a judgment. So then you notice that. Oh, here I am relating in this particular way. And as we keep coming back and just notice, and just notice, oh, this is how it's working, this is what's going on, hopefully at some point you notice a little glimmer that in the noticing, There's a a place of freedom, or a place of being independent or free of what you're noticing. Not be caught in it. And that's really helpful, because then all the constructions, this constructive world, thinking about and wanting and relating, can begin to calm down. And one of the very useful ways of having all these constructions begin to calm down, become peaceful, is not buying into them is not believing them, not disbelieving them, not uh, just kind of letting them be, not reacting to them, not being bothered by them. Just stay in the simple noticing, oh, this is how it is now. When we get bothered, then we stir up the constructions, start making more constructions. So we make a, put a big emphasis in this practice here on non-reactive awareness, non-judgmental awareness, on just simple presence, simple noticing, as an antidote to reconstructing more constructions. Make some sense? Are you, you still with me? Because I've said two things about what happens in the present moment. So now we come to the third one. So there's what's happening, there's your relationship to what's happening, and there's the you that's relating. It's kind of like a sentence, right? There's the object, the verb, and the subject. Subject, object, verb. You know what? Subject, verb, object. I relating To my breathing. I relating to my food. I relating to sleep. And the relating is a blank. You can fill it in. I love to sleep. There's the sleep, there's the love, and then there's the I. There's the you that's the subject for all this. So, one of the things that we, at some point, as the practice is we follow this path. You start noticing something about the subject that's doing the relating. And then we don't just leave it as a given, that the subject is God-given, Dharma-given, just how it is. But at some point we start noticing aspects of the subject, the sense of self, the self-identity that's there. And there's so many different... Sticky notes stuck onto the subject Like when I was in seventh grade my art teacher came up to me looked over my shoulder at a drawing I was making and she said to me Oh uh, You have no artistic ability (laughs) Now you know, I didn't know I was supposed to I didn't care and so I didn't know anything, and so oh, okay. So I, I didn't mind being told that. It wasn't like a bad thing. It just was the way the universe was built. I had no artistic ability. So I went along for the next six years with a sticky note attached to me. Here's a subject, here's a person who has no artistic ability. Until it was shown to me that that wasn't true. And so we we accumulate all these sticky notes, all these ideas and labels of who we are. And then we relate to the world and to ourselves and the, relationship, the relationships, relationships we form to experience has a lot to do with those labels and ideas of who we are. So, for example, if you might uh, feel that... Um, like for me, it like, I used to think that GIL was short for guilt. <laughs> and so, you know, just, you know, I just, that's who I was. I was a guilty kind of guy. I, was, I just felt guilty how, literally, you know, I feel guilty how I walked across the meditation hall floor when I was a new meditation student, or how I opened and closed the door in the meditation hall. I felt guilty. I don't, there was no reason to it. I didn't have to have a reason to feel guilty. <laughs> you know, when in doubt, be guilty. And um, so I had this deeply ingrained sense that something was fundamentally not just wrong with me, but guilty about me. <laughs> and um, it was not a particularly pleasant way to go through life. So that was a big sticky note. Um, and then there's um, you know, the idea that uh, I had for a while that um, it was really important that everyone, everyone, like me. I needed to be a likable person. So it wasn't so much that my identity was that I was likable. My identity, the sticky note, was I'm supposed to be that kind of person. I'm supposed to be that kind of subject. And I, I did these social gymnastics, <clears throat> try to get people to like me until it got to be too much of a burden. And I just couldn't keep it up, because it was too painful. And then I had to see that and kind of be free of this always wanting. Another sticky note that I've had is, um, it's kind of, I call it my Achilles heel, being the responsible one. I'm the responsible one. I'll, you know, If I'm going to say I'm going to do something, I'll, you know, I'm responsible. And uh, sometimes it's driven my wife crazy. Leave it alone. But, you know, I have this identity I'm supposed to be. The idea that um, I am competent or incompetent, I'm adequate or not adequate, that I have, you know, I don't have enough self-esteem, so I have to build up my self-esteem. There's a problem with both. There's a problem with having esteem, there's a problem with not having it. Buddhism offers a third alternative. Don't bother playing the steam game. <laughs> Just live your life without building or building up anything, any constructions, or destroying any. And so there's all these senses of self that we operate with, and our society Some will add them to us. It's a, it's a cooperative endeavor. Sometimes it's very painful what society puts on other people, and then they, we internalize it. Our family experience has a big to do with it, our life experience has a lot to do with it. And, um, and so as we do this practice and goes on, we begin having a question mark around some of the ways in which we see ourselves, or hold ourselves, the idea of the subject. And that sense of having a question begins maybe teasing apart and wondering, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe I'm not this way. Maybe there's another way of seeing myself or holding myself. I don't have to be the one who's always the one who's hurt or the victim or the one who's always um, the one who's supposed to be sincere or the rebel the rebel or whatever it might be, the identity of something we hold on to. So begin questioning this. Now, in the Buddhist psychology, these sticky notes are not sticky notes. They're constructions. They're more activity. Constructions are these activities of the mind where the, the mind, in its activity, is constructing something, is making something happen there. So we construct these identities. Many years ago, I visited visited some friends who had a daughter who was, I don't know how old, she was a year and a half or two. She was just just beginning to speak. And so I asked her, "Uh, who's that? I pointed to someone. That's daddy. She got that one. Who's that? Mommy. pointed to someone else. Who's that? Tamara. And I pointed to myself, who's that? She knew my name, Gil. I pointed to her. Who's that? And she said, I am. And I said, No, no, who are you? And she said, I am. And I said, No, no, no. (laughs) I'm slow, right? (laughs) Who are you? And she stood up really tall and straight and firm. And she looked at me and said, I am. <laughs> I am that I am. Remember that one? <laughs> so I, oh, <laughs> I, I quieted down pretty quickly then. You know, so to start so early, we add these things, these labels and these ideas. And here I was helping her build it up, right? <clears throat> So these are constructions as well. To bring these constructions to peace, to quiet these constructions, is, happy, is happiness. To be able to question these things and slowly, perhaps, maybe even imperceptibly, to allow these constructions to calm down, relax, not buy into them as much maybe not buying into them as much simply because we notice them. Oh, there it is. There it is again. There it is again. It's very, very powerful to just notice. The simplicity of noticing. In the simplicity of noticing, we're not buying into it as much. And every moment we don't buy into it, we begin settling, relaxing, stepping away from becoming free of these things. So then, so there's what's happening, there's so our relationship to what's happening, and then the, the, this, this subject. So what happens as these various constructions that make up our sense of self, self-identity, quiet down? And I use this idea of quiet down purposefully rather than let go of or disappear or something but rather quiet down. Maybe you don't need them. I'm sure all of you have situations where you've assumed an identity and been quite content to put it down later. But while you had it, it was really consequential. Some of you have taken on an identity here this week of being a meditator, a retreatant. And with that comes all this sticky stuff, and you're suffering, or you're happy, or you're elated, or you're contented, or all around this identity of being a meditator. Some of you will leave on Sunday, and you'll leave that identity behind. You'll go on to the next one, and it'll be, you know, kind of history. But what happens if you begin questioning the identity formation and begin slowly teasing it apart, relaxing it, not believing it, stepping out of it, calming it down? Calming it down so that I AM can stand by itself. doesn't have to be filled in I AM X. Just be. What happens if, as it comes further and the I falls away, even the sense of being a subject is a construction. Who are you when you don't have any thoughts to tell you? If there are some time, there's some day, when your mind gets really calm, you might notice a gap between your thoughts. Who are you in that gap? If you can't tell yourself who you are. As these constructions relax, still, the Buddha talked about these constructions Thinning out, rather than the Big Bang theory, just just big, you know, the pop the balloon theory of awakening. Just the Buddha talked about the thinning out, and it's really interesting because when the mind is really agitated and busy and caught up in a sense of self, it can be very frightening the idea of letting go of self, self identity. But as these things get quieter and calmer and more and more thinned out, there's calm, there's space, there's peace, there's joy, there's happiness in that space. And it, we can see how as we let go more, as we thin out more, it really goes in a really beautiful place. And it's actually attractive to let things settle, be more peaceful. We don't get diminished in that process, but in a sense we get expanded or enhanced in the peace or the happiness. And then at some point, things get so thin that the sense of self, identity, of being, even of consciousness, being conscious, is so thin it just seems like the most glorious thing is just to let that filament of consciousness go as well. There's what's happening, there's all the constructions about how we relate to it, and one of the constructions has to do with the various constructions around the subject of who we are. As we understand and see and be present for the constructive activities, they slowly settle down, go to peace and that peace is the great happiness. Anicca Sankara <clears throat> <clears throat> Upakitua Neruchanti Te Sang Vpasamo Sukho So please uh, let the practice be very simple and I hope that you can trust in the simplicity of just noticing. And what I talked about this evening might sound distant. It might be distant from you, some of these things. Don't worry about it. Just be, that's another construction, just be simple here, here. And I hope that this talk maybe has inspired you a little bit to try more, try again. Give yourself over a little more fully to sitting upright, present, stable, here, to notice this now, whatever it might be. Thank you.